0: You've got questions, we've got answers, phone lines are open. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-348-7884. Any question of any kind that you have that relates in any way to the content of the Line of Fire, any way that I can be of help to you, give us a call, 866-348-7884. It is that simple. And I'm going straight to the phone, starting in Pennsylvania with Seth. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
2: Hey, Dr. Brown, Shabbat
0: Shalom to you. Shabbat Shalom.
2: All right. Um, I had a a question that I actually um, posted onto your uh, website, but I wanted to actually talk to you and uh, get a straight answer, if that's all right. Sure. All right. So uh, my question is in regards to a classic Orthodox um, rabbinic argument that is against the testimony of Yeshua being the visual glory of God the Father, and it's in reference to Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19. And I actually have the question typed out, if I can just read that verbatim. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Um, Okay, so I said, uh, rabbis like Tovia Singer often reference Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19, to bolster their narrow view that Yeshua couldn't have possibly been the Messiah, or the visual glory of the Father for that matter, because, I quote, Genesis, sorry, Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not man or a son of man. However, this doesn't measure up with other supernatural episodes in Tanakh. My ultimate question is this. How can rabbis reconcile this standpoint with Genesis 18? The scriptures say that Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw three men standing in front of him, and he bowed himself to the ground and recognized one of them as the Lord Adonai. Not to mention the fact that we have two Yahwehs in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, one visible, one invisible. With this fact in mind, Yeshua being the visual glory of the Father, shouldn't be alien, being as though man cannot look at the Father and live, Exodus thirty-three twenty. So, Dr. Brown, I just wanted to get your insights on that, and I just wanted to make sure that my thinking is uh, proper in that sense, and how rabbis can possibly reconcile this.
0: Yes, sir. First, your thinking is excellent, and I would use similar arguments to what you've used. So let's first try to argue it from the rabbinic viewpoint, Numbers 23 also repeated similarly in First Samuel 15, that God is not a man, God is not a human being, that he should lie or change his mind. So first thing we say, yeah, absolutely, we agree, 100%, yeah. God's not a human being, we agree. And in the context, what's being said He is he's not a human being, so he should lie or be fickle or, or uh, waffle back and forth and waver and things like that. Yeah, we agree, that's not who he is, he's unchangeable eternal God, that's number one. Number two, they would say, well, you're making God into a man or a man into a God. We'd say, no, we're saying the eternal God can make himself fully manifest in human form as he does at different times in the Hebrew Bible. And you point to the best example, Genesis 18, which you have to misread. You have to try to say it's just three angels representing God. Or, but there's no question that there's a direct conversation between Yahweh and Abraham and Sarah, uh, Sarai at that point. There's no question that quite directly at the end of the chapter, there's an extensive conversation between Abraham and Yahweh. And then after that, Yahweh leaves and the two angels go to Sodom. So they've gone on their way while Abraham has an extended conversation with Yahweh. That's the straightforward reading of the text without any question. And even the argument, you know, goes on a man. Yeah, we understand what that means. But what does it say in Exodus 15? It calls him Ishmael Chama, a man of war. So does that mean he's—no, ma- no. So just understand what the text is saying. And, and honestly, if they were not approaching it as counter-missionary rabbis, but scholars of early Judaism, they would have no problem with the idea of Yeshua being the glory of God in earthly form or the full manifestation of the person of God. So you're, you're definitely on track there. I agree with your thinking, and I've written similar things at length in Volume 2 of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. So thank you, Seth, for calling. I appreciate it.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you, Doctor.
0: You're welcome. 866-34-TRUTH. Phone lines are open for any relevant questions you have. We go to Seattle, Washington. Rob, welcome to the Line of Fire.
3: Thank you very much, Dr. Brian. I've been uh, following you uh, for an awful long time, and uh uh Here's the question. Are you ready for the question?
0: I'm very ready, sir.
3: Okay, that's very good. Thank you. Um, I got a sister. Her, her name's Laura, and Laura's just the sweetest uh, woman in the whole universe. She's protected me. She's uh, ten years older than I am, so she's been like another mother because both my parents were highly stressed, and she was always there, kind of like throwing a uh, buffer around me and making sure that I was totally safe just a sweetheart mm-hmm. uh, she married uh, a uh, conservative jew and uh you know uh, i uh uh have always uh, been very very careful not to any way obtrude because she is so forthcoming to protect me and help me so i i don't want to uh, sour the whole thing so yeah. th- here's the question i hear these uh uh announcements about the Third Temple, and uh, some pretty weird stuff going on. And uh, uh, what in reality is going on in Jerusalem uh, with reference to the Third Temple? Uh, is it being built with uh, bricks and mortar, and, uh, you know, kind of like the second and the first one was built, or uh, what in the world is going on over there?
0: Not much is really going on, to be honest. It's, it's mainly reports that you hear especially from uh, Christian evangelicals that are very excited about it. Your average Israeli is not thinking about it. The vast majority of religious Jews believe that when the Messiah is revealed, that's one way we'll know who he is because he'll build the temple or the temple will come down from heaven. But there is a small movement of very religious Jews that is they have worked for many years to prepare the articles of the temple, the, the sure. altar, and various things like this, the Temple Mount Institute— they have uh, people that have trained and are ready to do the priestly functions and things like that. Uh, some were involved in sacrificing a Passover lamb uh, last year at Passover. Uh, but basically, this is a very small movement. It is not in the focus of your average Israeli at all. They're, they're fairly secular. Your average religious Jew is waiting for the Messiah to be revealed and build the temple. Some will say, "Well, there's no problem to be getting things ready," but most—that's not their viewpoint. Their viewpoint is to be praying and preparing. So nothing's being built. There's nothing that can be built because you'd have to get rid of the the Dome of the Rock, the the giant uh, mosque that's there. Sure, now some sure. say, "Well, there's another location that's the real Temple Mount that can be built there." But the majority view, the prevailing view, is that that's the location. So it would take some cataclysmic events for the building of the physical Third Temple. I think it well could happen before the Lord returns, and that this will happen, and it'll be part of the, the final deception of people looking to that before the Lord returns and then realizing that he's their, their only hope. Uh, in other words, the, the Jewish people could be looking to a false messiah before they realize that they need the true messiah. But I'm absolutely not dogmatic on that, and, my, and I'm not looking for a Third Temple. I'm looking for the Lord. So
3: Yes, of course. Yeah, so—go uh, ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go. Uh, well, the the question is, do you believe that, uh, you know, if we just wanted to know where the temple was, that if we look at the Dome of the Rock, it was there? Or uh, do we have that for certain, or is that just sort of uh, the, a tradition? The vast,
0: the vast majority of archaeological scholars and biblical scholars— Put the location there it is a very very small fringe minority view that we have the Temple Mount location incorrect there's so much tradition behind it so much information behind it so much data behind it uh, that it's it's really I I don't want to demean those that feel differently because some have been very serious and written a lot and studied etc but according to everything I know it is it is just a very very minority view And bottom line is uh, no one, in terms of a major movement in Israel, is saying, let's go build the temple, but at another location. So all the talk of rebuilding it is at that location, which means that something has to happen to the Dome of the Rock. If you destroy it, that will cause an all-out war with the Muslim world worldwide. Something else would have to happen. The Joel Richardson theory is that the Antichrist will broker a deal— that he'll be like the Islamic Messiah and, and whatever, he'll broker a deal with Israel and the Muslim world that Israel can build their temple and this will be part of the proof to the Muslim world he's the Messiah and the Jewish world will then embrace him and so on. I mean, it's, it's a plausible theory, but all these things are just theories. And again, um, your average person in Israel, it's just not an issue. It's It's much more of an issue to some prophecy-minded evangelical Christians in America than it is to Jews in Israel. May the Lord... Uh, bless your sister and her husband with the real knowledge of Jesus, the Messiah. Thank you for the call. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Michigan. Cole, welcome to the Line of Fire.
4: Hey, Dr. Brown. How you doing?
0: Doing well, thank you.
4: All right. So my question actually has to do with—so uh, not not too long ago, I actually was diagnosed with anxiety. I'm not exactly sure which kind, but I'm I'm kind of more— leaning towards is probably OCD of some kind. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, people always talk about this talk on the heart that sometimes you feel like when it comes to knowing what's God's will and what's not, if you're aware right. of that. Right, sure. Um, yet I'm realizing sometimes my anxiety has sometimes led me astray. Like for, I'll just give a few examples. Like one time, like I, like they they like really, really begin to appeal to your emotions like sometimes the Jehovah's Witnesses kind of do. And yeah. one time, like, almost felt like a tug on the heart to go there, and it was just, like, completely deceitful. Um, and there's other examples where I, I currently go to school at Moody, and sometimes I felt it, you know, tugging me to go away. And so sometimes it just creates a bunch of confusion. And yep. so I'm saying – I'm currently feeling that sometimes now where, like, sometimes, you know, it's tugging me to, like, sell my Xbox, in which I feel like I do kind of want to do because I don't really, you know, play it that much or anything. Um, sometimes I want to sit down and think about it, though, and sometimes it just like it's just pushing me to do it now, now, yeah. now. And I'm just wondering, is there a place for slowing yeah, it got, down and thinking about it for a moment? Yeah, and yeah, how yeah. do I distinguish distinguish between what God is an a- doing yeah. and anxiety with it? Oh.
0: I've got an answer for you, Cole. I appreciate your sincerity, and, and you're not the only one who struggles with this. But I've got some wisdom for you. So stay right there, and we'll come back on the other side of the break.
1: the line of fire with your host dr michael brown your voice of moral cultural and spiritual revolution here again is dr michael brown
0: welcome welcome to the line of fire you've got questions we've got answers 86634 truth hey one quick note as we're talking about israel third temple we are down to our last 15 seats open on our israel trip in may all right, out of 100 seats, we're down to our last 15, only two buses. It's a wonderful, special, intimate tour. It really is the, the trip of a lifetime. I wish I could just push a button and get everybody there to experience the land, to encounter God there, to let the Bible come alive for you. But we've only got room for 15 more. So if you want to join us for the tour of a lifetime, go to my website right now, Ask Dr. Brown. askdrbrown.org, and you'll see it right on the homepage. Okay. So, uh, Cole, back to you, just a few things. Number one, the first thing you need to do is recognize that it's not God who is causing anxiety or putting you under stress or playing games like tugging at your heart and not tugging at your heart. Did you get it? Oh, I didn't get it. And that's not who he is. And he understands your weakness. In other words, he understands whatever tendency you have in your life right now, it makes it harder for you to sense his leading, to sense his witness. And look, if, if I tell you, don't think about anything, don't worry about anything for the next hour, well, then your mind's going to start to worry. And you're, you know, it's just human nature. So we start to think, is that the Holy Spirit? Is that Not the Holy Spirit. It gets very stressful. God wants to give you peace. So the first thing is, if you feel something like that, and you think it could be the Lord, the first thing to do is say, Father, if this is you, just let it come in my heart with an abiding peace. Now, we're assuming that's in harmony with Scripture. You know, if you feel the tug to follow Jehovah's Witnesses, you ignore that because they're a cult and, and, and they don't teach the Bible. Everything has to line up with Scripture. But let's say you just feel, I think, I'm supposed to do, I think I'm supposed to go on this missions trip. Then your response should be, Father, if that's you, let it come with abiding peace. And if it stays with you over a period of time and as you're worshiping, fellowshipping with the Lord, reading the word, there's a real sense of peace surrounding it and it it abides in a healthy way. Then you start to walk in that direction. And as you do, the the peace will deepen. And if you just ask the Lord, if you just will help me with peace and assurance, it it will make life a lot easier for me. Uh, He's tender. He's caring. We are his sheep. I often remind him, I'm just a dumb sheep. I don't know much. You're the shepherd. You're the good shepherd and the great shepherd. So lead me and guide me. So we worship the Lord. We spend quality time in his word. We meditate on his word. What's clearly written in scripture, we, we simply obey by his grace. And in other areas, secondary matters, other things like that that are not explicit in scripture, you know, where to go to school, how to serve the Lord in different ways— etc. he'll he'll make his will known but ask him to give you that lasting witness of the spirit and he has the ability to do that and if you don't have it then just don't act on it all right
4: all right uh one other thing so uh i, I was thinking sometimes it could also be like maybe he is calling me to do this but sometimes maybe i have an unwilling heart and so maybe i just need him to like Actually, like, help me to get to want to do it. I don't know if that's how it works. Yeah, yeah, sometimes.
0: but the, but the, yeah, absolutely. That's often the case that God wants us to do something, and we're not really happy with it. But that's where you just you keep giving your life to Him. It meaning, I don't mean getting saved all over again. But Lord, I'm your servant. I'm your son. I want to honor you. I want to do your will. Here I am, and He hears your heart, and He'll give you that willing heart. So may the Lord give you grace, favor, peace, assurance. God bless you, man. Thank you for calling in. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Mike in Bourbonnais, Illinois. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Mike. Are you there? Well, I guess not. We tried. 866-348-7884. Let us go to Stephen in Tampa, Florida. Welcome to the line of fire. Mm-hmm.
5: Hey, Dr. Brown, how have you been?
0: Doing well, thank you.
5: Good. Um, I've talked with you a few times, and you know that I'm in seminary, and I feel God's called me to be a care pastor at my church, and I've been doing an internship for over a year now. And we had a hospital visit that I go to quite frequently about a a kid who's not 21 and— All I knew when walking in is there was some sort of gunshot wound, Mm. and he was at a gun range. There was an accident that happened, and it shot him in the head, Mm. and when I walked in, the family was destroyed, and he's been brain dead for the past three days, Mm. and in the state of Florida, if you're declared brain dead, you have 48 hours to make a decision as a family, and... Well, yesterday I found out that the kid passed away, and we prayed for at least 30 to 45 minutes for God to resurrect or to do a miracle. Mm-hmm. But something I'm struggling with, with not dealing with a lot of such a serious situation, is, what's my follow-up? You know, there's a grieving period, a raw grieving period I know the family must go through was such a tragedy. But I'm just struggling, and I've been praying to God deeply about, God, what do I do? I'm just trying to seek out guidance from people much wiser than me.
0: Yeah, and obviously you do what you know how to do. You pray, you ask for a miracle, and you don't receive that miracle. It doesn't happen, and that's often our experience here in this world. So now how do you minister to the grieving family? Uh, do they know who you are because of your visit? Yes, they're
5: uh, members of our church.
0: Sir. Got it. Right. So, so what what you want to do is simply this: you just want to be there. The first thing you could do is just send them a note, uh, maybe with some, either with some flowers or with some fruits or just just something you know from the church, and and uh, just say you're so terribly sorry for their loss, praying for comfort and grace in the midst of it. And you're here for them if anything is ever needed. And don't worry about having the right words. Don't worry about having some magic formula. Uh, what they just need is people to love on them and, and just be there. It's, it's that simple. If you know the, the family, you can just pay a visit one night and just come by and say, hey, just been praying for you. Just want to let you know we love you and we care about you. And then sometimes people get an immediate outpouring of love right when something happens. But six months later, a year later, when they're really hurting, people tend to forget. So what I would do is I'd also just put a note in my calendar, X number of months out, to say, hey, praying for you, just wondering how you're doing, anything I could do for you. And that normally means the world. It's not having the right words. It's that loving presence. It's being there. I remember, one of my friends had started pastoring a congregation, and all right, don't know what happened there. Uh, pastoring a congregation, and he had to make his first visit to a home after a death in the family, and he's praying the whole way. Okay, God, I need, I need wisdom. I need to know what to say, and you know, and just just going around with all of that, and and he walked in the door, and they just hugged him and held on to him, and he realized he just needed to be there. That's it. He just needed to be there. So your presence, letting folks know you're thinking about them, praying for them, anything I can do to help, that means the world. It really does. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Jesse in Minnesota. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
6: Hi, Dr. Brown. It's great to be on the show for the third time.
0: Well, great. Nice to have you.
6: Uh, So I've been really, really blessed by reading the Tree of Life version of the Bible, which Uh I know you had a hand in. Yep. And uh, anyways, my question does pertain to that loosely. So I've been reading through Exodus and uh, coming across all the different names of the angels and things like that. Uh, The angel of God, the angel of Adonai, those sorts of things. And it's all very confusing to me. But anyways, my question really more pertains to Genesis eighteen one, mm-hmm. where it basically says that Yahweh, Adonai, was actually meeting with, that Abraham actually saw Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And when I first sort of contemplated what that would mean, it, like, right away put the fear of God in me, like, wow, is this for real? Like, anyways, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that particular verse, what that actually means, what are the implications of that, uh, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, of course, I've, I've written about it much, and, <coughs> excuse me, I commented on it many a time. Uh, the passage most clearly read is speaking of, of Yahweh and two angelic beings, two angels. They're described as three men, angels commonly in human appearance. That's that's not unusual. I just referenced the, the passage earlier uh, with another caller. So as you read on, it, it, there's a face-to-face dialogue between Yahweh and Abraham and Sarah, and then he stays and has a lengthy dialogue with Abraham while the two angels go on their way to Sodom, which is why you get Genesis 19.1, two men, the angels, come to Sodom. So uh, that's clearly what happens, but you say, but he can't be seen. Ah, well, that's where we understand God's triunity, God's complex unity. The Father is hidden in glory. John 1.18, no one has seen God. Right? First Timothy, the sixth chapter, tells us that he dwells in unapproachable light, which no one can see. Uh, so the Father dwells in unapproachable light, but the Son makes him known. The Son is the one who manifests his glory. The Son is the express uh, shining forth of his character and his direct image. So these times when Yahweh is seen in the Old Testament, it's the Son who's revealing him. And that's what it says in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time, the one and only son who's in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. So that's the son's role to make the father known. Hey, thank you for the call. Much appreciated. We'll be right back with your call.
1: It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Thanks for joining us on The Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. Michael Brown here, 866-348-7884. Be sure to check out our latest video commentaries, our latest articles on the Ask Dr. Brown website, askdrbrown.org. Do you get my emails? A few times a week, not every day, but you get my emails? No? Well, you need to. This way, you won't miss an article. You won't miss a video. Once a week, we send you a list of the new videos, list of the new articles with a summary of what's there, so you won't miss anything. We, we also have special resource offers we put together and things that you'll be the first to know about. So be sure to sign up. When you do, you get a really eye-opening and free ebook. So sign up today. Ask dot org right on the home page. You just see the sign up for the email list just takes a few seconds to do that. 866-348-7884. We go to Gerald, Texas. Our friend Jerichaya, welcome to the line of fire. Shalom. Shalom. Need you to speak up, but go ahead.
5: Yes, sir. Um, how you doing? Dr. Michael Brown. Doing good. Hey, sir. Uh, yeah. I I watched a debate with uh, Dr. James White, Mm
1: -hmm.
5: and I've been really struggling with this. I've been studying this for the past year now. And, um, you know, when it comes to God's sovereignty and human free will, I've listened to a lot of Christians when it comes to the free will part. They like to kind of ground that in libertarianism or Molinism. And I was curious, is there any way you could, um, those two aren't like, seemingly like, you know, just a strictly Calvinistic view or a strictly, uh, you know, Arminian view. Is there a biblical view of God's uh,
0: sovereignty and free will? Yeah, well, obviously everyone involved, Calvinist, Arminian, others, they're all trying to understand what the biblical view is, right? That's the approach that we all have. Father, what does your word say? We just want to rightly understand it. To me, what's undeniable is that God is God. He's the king. He rules and reigns. That's one. Two, that he's given us freedom to make choices and that we make many choices he doesn't approve of that grieve him and that many things go in ways that are not in accordance with his desires. Yet, that's how he set it up. In his sovereignty, he set it up to give us certain choices. Nonetheless, he will ultimately carry out his will on the earth. He will ultimately carry out his will and have a people for him who love him and will be with him for all eternity. But the fact that he grieves, the fact that he often distances himself from human choices and says, this is not my heart, this is not my desire, the fact that at other times he said, if only you had done this, you would have been blessed, indicates that he does not program us or predestine us or force us, whichever way someone would look at, or or predetermine, all of our actions. He does predetermine certain things, but he also predetermines based on his foreknowledge because he inhabits eternity. So from God's perspective, he sees everything through all eternity. He's not time bound. He created time, and he exists outside of time. When it comes to acts of his sovereignty, what i like to emphasize is, number one, it is not self-contradictory. He will never do anything that contradicts his essential nature. That's number one. Number two, his sovereignty is always praiseworthy. Whatever he does is ultimately good and worthy of praise. And number three, he can do above and beyond what he has promised, but he'll never do less. So he might choose to heal an atheist in the midst of that person's rebellion. That's over and above. But if his people will trust him and do what he has promised, that he will deliver on those promises. So, to me, Jerichiah, you want to look at the overwhelming testimony of Scripture, and you cannot deny that from beginning to end, God gives us choices. From Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve make wrong choices after Adam is given commands in Genesis 2, to right to the end of the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, who, whoever will, let him come. So only by God's grace and help can we be saved— but God does give us a choice to accept or reject his grace. And in his sovereignty, that's how he set things up, to give us that freedom, to allow there to be the back and the forth, the obedience, the disobedience, the blessings, the curses. And out of all of that, in his brilliant, glorious sovereignty, he will get his goal of people that will love him and be with him forever, and that he can bless as they worship and serve him, as we worship, and serve Him. Those would be, I I just emphasize the main points, and I see nowhere in Scripture where human beings should think that they don't have the ability to make choices because God has predetermined everything. I do not see that taught in the Bible. Hey, thank you for the call. And one last thing, ask yourself a question. If God had predetermined all human steps, why does He respond the way He does, with grief or with commendation, with joy or with pain? Why does he respond that way if he predetermined it a certain way? And why does he distance himself from certain things we do if he predetermined it at an ultimate level? Hey, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Dr. X in Arkansas. Hello. Hello.
7: Hello. How are you?
0: Just fine. Thank you. Can you you hear me okay? Yeah, I can.
7: Okay, great. Uh, he said that I wasn't being heard well enough uh, in the pre-call there, so I just want to make sure you, hear, you can hear me fine. It's my pleasure to be talking to such a brilliant mind. Thank you for your ministry and what you do for everybody out there. You're welcome. Well, hey, uh, I have a question for you. I feel a little bit like a theological orphan uh, in many respects, as as, or, or, or somebody who got, you know, their parents got divorced. Uh, you know, I'm charismatic on one hand, but I have reformed leanings on the other hand. I mm-hmm. just ordered your book, actually just got your book, uh, Authentic Fire, and I am looking forward to reading that. Thank you for uh, doing the, that work in the, in the charismatic world. I really appreciate it. Uh, my question today, though, uh, for you is I've heard you say on some of your programs, and I kind of just want to know where you fall down exactly uh, I know you said that you're neither covenantal nor dispensational. Uh, same with me. I'm neither covenantal nor dispensational according to their classic categories. But I'm wondering what uh, particularly about dispensationalism do you disagree with? Um, and uh, and and we'll just go from there. I'm just wondering exactly, because you said yeah. before, like in a debate you had with Gary Demar, that you're not dispensational, and I'm wondering. Of course, you're you're aware of the many permutations of dispensationalism: classic, revised, and then progressive. Uh, you know, where do you where do you fall down? What 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 do you disagree with about yeah. dispensationalism?
0: So, number one, uh, very very strongly reject a pre-trib rapture, very very strongly okay. for many many reasons. Uh, number two reject the imminency idea, the way it's taught by dispensationalism, that through church history, Jesus could potentially come at any moment. Uh, that's second thing. Mm-hmm. Third thing, I reject the strict uh, separations that are made between Israel and the church. I do recognize that the church consists of saved Jews and saved Gentiles. I recognize that. But I recognize that God has been working in Israel all the time that he's been working in the Church, the dispensational idea that there's a divine parenthesis, that we're in the age of grace, the Church age, and then when the Church is taken out, then God begins to deal with Israel once again, it is obviously false in terms of God's been dealing with Israel all this time, and after scattering us, has preserved us, and then brought us back and restored the land. Uh, early dispensationalists probably were not expecting it to happen quite like that, but that, that strict Amen. idea of the separation, and that's, that's the essence of dispensationalism, these different dispensations. So the age of grace, and then when the church is taken out, it goes back to kingdom, and then Jews getting saved during the Great Tribulation. Without the Holy Spirit, there's not a gospel of grace. I mean, just lots of things like that. Now, in its earliest forms, yeah. uh, in its most radical forms, it, it very much rejected uh, much of the, 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 uh, the Gospels that was just for the Jews in the first century or the Sermon on the Mount is the right. Constitution for the Millennial Kingdom. So it's gotten less radical okay. after that. Uh, and the progressive yeah, I dispensationalists think, uh... would, would be, I'd be closer. But the pre troop rapture, this a strong distinction between Israel and the church, again, I believe God has distinct promises for Israel He's working out, but this is all while still working in the church and all in this, this age of grace together.
7: Okay, all right, so it sounds do you still believe in a seven year tribulation and we're deciding you know what uh, you know when a, a a rapture will take place or no 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 there's a, a, no, there's no the
0: rapture and the second coming are are two parts of the same event. Jesus appears in glory at the end of this age we are caught up to meet him uh the the dead messiah rise, the living are transformed we're caught up to meet him and we descend. Together with him, so he appears in glory. We are caught up to meet him in the sight of the whole world, and we descend together with him. That I'm quite certain of in terms of my understanding of Scripture. But will there be a specific seven-year period or a seven-year symbolic? That's debatable because we've been in tribulation. Again, verses I constantly quote: John 16:33. In this world, you'll have tribulation but be of good cheer, you'll overcome the world. Romans 5, that we, we grow through tribulation and, and suffering, and Revelation 1, that, that John is our companion in the kingdom, and tribulation and patient endurance that we have. Uh, Acts 14, that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom. So we've been in tribulation since Jesus died and rose from the dead. Will there be a especially intense period at the end of the age? I expect so, along with an especially glorious outpouring of the Holy Spirit that it will be a time of parallel extremes. Remember the words of Peter in Acts 2, that the, the outpouring Joel prophesied is for the last days, and it's upon all flesh, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I expect great shaking at the end of the age, great harvest at the end of the age, great intensifying. Will it be a literal seven years or not? That, to me, is debatable. But thank you for the call. And by the way, there are other Reformed charismatics. There are plenty of them. So you don't have to feel that that much of an orphan. Or... You can just swing all the way over our way. All right. God bless you. Dr. X, 866-34-TRUTH. I've got 30 seconds before the break, so I will get to your calls on the other side of the break. Remember, this weekend, ministering the Shabbat service at Beth Shalom Congregation, Messianic Congregation, God willing, that is tomorrow morning in Corona, California, then doing an afternoon teaching, and then with Pastor Shane Eidelman, in Palmdale, California, Sunday morning, the 9 o'clock and the 11 o'clock service. So join us there if you're in California. I think I'll be in Oxnard the next weekend, by the way. I'm back and forth home for a few days and back to California. But all the info is on my website, askdrbrown.org. Just check out itinerary.
1: It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Line of Fire. Michael Brown, just a few minutes left. You've got questions, we've got answers, 866 3-4-Truth, let's go to, uh, let's see, hang on here. There we go. Uh, California, is it NAR or NOR? NOR. NOR, all right. Well, thank you. What's your question?
8: How are you doing? Is this Mr. Brown? Yes, it is, sir. Yes, it is. How are you doing? I'm I'm calling into reference to a podcast that you had last week. uh, I believe it was with Vocab Malone. Yes, sir. And you were speaking in regards to the black Israelites. Yes. Um, actually, I am a, a Israelite myself. And um,
0: mm-hmm.
8: I'm a man of black descent. There is a, a DVD that is out. It's called Hebrews to Negroes. All the research is there. It's written by. It's actually filmed by Ronald Dalton, Jr. Mm-hmm. I... uh. I strongly suggest that you take a look at that video. All the research is there. It will uh, explain to you who the biblical Israelites are.
0: Let me just ask you one question, sir, with all respect. Certainly. um, Why do you think I'm ignorant of the evidence, and why do you think that my studies of almost 50 years in the original languages are are wrong?
8: Um, I've studied for 28 years and the information is correct and accurate.
0: Well, I say you're wrong. I've studied almost 50. So there you go. I beat you. No, in all seriousness, sir, I, I, I'm sure you've studied, in, in, but many other scholars all, in, have studied and come to 100% opposite conclusions based on DNA, based I've, on archaeology, based on language, based on iconography.
8: And the DNA testing, and actually the DNA testing actually proves it. Proves what and and who the biblical Israelites really are and they're cer- certainly not to...
0: Af- they're certainly not the people of Africa generally speaking that's that's very conclusive we know that from that, from many many many
8: uh, there actually sources. There are, actually there are still tribes there are tribes of Israel of Israel that are in Africa
0: yeah and, and they have the same DNA as I have
8: what is your DNA if you mind me asking.
0: Ninety uh, percent Ashkenazi, ten percent Sephardic, but the the point as, I should have I should have been yeah I, I should have been. Excuse I
8: wanna, me. I want to say something. I want to share something with you. No, just Naki. just hang
0: on one second. I I need to. I I should say something differently. I I, I misspoke. They have say the Lemba tribe in Zimbabwe. They have the same priestly gene that the Ashkenazi and Sephardic. Jews have that are also priestly. In other words, they all go back to the same Middle Eastern source. All right? I, so I would like the original The original Israelites were not Caucasian. They were, were not African. They were Middle Eastern. All right? So Middle. they were more brown skinned than anything.
8: Do you know uh, Abraham? I'm going to start with Abraham's name. When the Most High changed Abraham's name, changed Abram's name to Abraham, and what what did that mean? What did he do that for? Ham, you know what ham means. Ham means burnt.
0: No, no, those two different words. Okay, okay, hang on, sir. With all respect, all right, you know, here's, here's why this is so sad. These are two different words ham with a hay and ham with a chet. I assure you, sir, that anyone that knew even one week's worth of Hebrew. One week. Just when you learn the alphabet. One day. One day. One day. That's it. Your first Hebrew class. One day. You would know that Avraham is spelled with a he, ha. And ham. all right, as in, we look, call him ham, right? Ham is spelled with a chet. All right? You, you would know that if you had one day of Hebrew. So I'm going to hope that the video, the DVD you mentioned, doesn't make errors that bad. But you see, when you call in, when you completely discount all my decades of study, all right, in terms of learning the Bible, learning the languages, okay, that's number one. Number two, when you make an error that someone with one, one, here, one hour, one hour of Hebrew, you would not make that mistake. And now you're laughing at me. i got a PhD in Semitic languages. It, for everybody that's tuning in and it's saying, well, what about these Hebrew Israelites? That's how big their errors are. That's how false. And if, if Moses was black and Jesus was black, so be it. That's of no concern to me. If the original Israelites were all Africans, that's of no concern to me. So be it. Okay if if me being a, a a Jew with white skin is because of intermarriage at a certain point into Israel whatever that's not the issue at all but wow 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 yeah and i'm i'm just yeah looking at uh, Ronald Dalton uh, he asked God in prayer one night for wisdom and knowledge to explain the madness he was seeing in the black community god heard his uh, heard his prayers and opened Ronald's eyes to the truth. Ever since that day, God would reveal the truth to Ronald in bits and pieces about the true, uh, uh, let's see, the true heritage of black people in America as it pertains to the ancient Hebrew Israelites of the Bible. God would reveal to Ronald the real reason why blacks have been oppressed for so many years, I guess because they're actually Israelites. Anyway, in all seriousness, nor do some actual serious study based on truth, based on facts. And here... I'm going to assume that you just made a really embarrassing error on national and international radio and Internet. I'm just going to make you made an embarrassing error. To prove my point, if anyone in your congregation actually reads Hebrew, okay, just ask them to show you the letters and the difference between Avraham and Ham, two distinctly different letters. Like my name starts with an M, Michael, and my wife's name starts with an N, Nancy, and they are different letters. Same thing here. And then once you realize how wrong you were and you were laughing at me for correcting you, maybe that'll get you realizing you've been misled. And the key thing is to find the true knowledge of God through Yeshua, the Messiah, and forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the key. That's the key. All right, may the Lord set you free from deception. 86634 Truth. Uh, let's go over to Texas. Sid, welcome to the line of fire.
5: Shalom from Texas, Dr. Brown. Shalom.: Yes, uh, I have a question. Uh, I'm looking at this, the cultural background study Bible, and yep. there's an insert concerning the character Satan in there mm-hmm. uh, that's mentioned in Job, chapter yep. one and two. Mm-hmm. And I just want you to get your take where John Walton says in this insert, there is no tempting, corrupting, depraving, or possessing involved. In fact, there is little, if any, overlap with the character Satan from the New Testament. The adversary and Job should therefore not be equated with the devil of later literature.
0: Yeah, so uh, with all respect to John Walton and the Cultural Study Bible, which I highly recommend— uh, I differ with him. I have an appendix or a reflection in my Job commentary where I say that it's definitely the same person. Now, now scholars do debate this. Michael Heiser doesn't believe it's the same being. But here's, here's why I say it is. Uh, his activity is in defiance of God. His interaction with God, as we understand what's going on, is he's really challenging God, that no one really serves God out of altruistic love. There's an arrogance to it and saying, look, you, you take away what Job has, and he'll curse you to your face. That's number one. Number two, he has the characteristics of Satan himself. He is a murderer. God will not touch Job, but what happens is that Satan goes out, has Satan the adversary, and he kills all of Job's children, and then has all of his possessions stolen, and then when that's not enough and he continues to challenge him and God says, you're, you're moving me to destroy him without a cause. That's what Satan does. He's an inciter. And that, that's the very accusation there, that he then smites him with a terrible illness. So we know in the New Testament that Satan is associated with disease and attack and things like that. That's one. Two, we know that, that he's a murderer from the beginning. So these are murderous acts uh, and, and he's directly challenging God. Not only so, but it is the same name by which he's called, soha the adversary. In Hebrew, he's now called that Satan in the New Testament. And then, if if you look at uh, at the Greek uh, for Job chapter two verse one, you'll see the same thing that that the Septuagint. So this is before uh, before the time of Jesus by a couple hundred years. Uh, when you look at Job, I'll just scroll down in the first chapter to. Uh, Verse, uh, verse six, right of chapter one. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves, and so on. And and uh, how is that translated in Septuagint? Ha, Diabolos. All right, so um, I knew that, but I wanted to make a thousand percent sure check that I wasn't misthinking. So he's called the devil. That that's that's the way Septuagint understands him. So, with all respect, uh, I differ. Uh, I differ because of the nature of Hasatan, the adversary there. Now, I translate it as the adversary. Uh, But in my mind, that is the exact same adversary of the New Testament. And what does the New Testament Satan do? Revelation 12, he accuses the brethren before God. Where where does that notion even come from? I would say it comes strongly from the book of Job as well. So with all respect to the Cultural Study Bible and John Walton, reflecting the view of many other Old Testament scholars, uh, I differ with them. And agree with those who see this as the devil himself. In fact, you you learn a lot about satanic nature by reading Job 1 and 2. Thank you for the call. All right, friends, we've got a great broadcast Monday, an interview that's going to blow you away. Be sure to be here, and I hope to see some of you in California this weekend. God bless.